Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM, the very best in late-night talk radio. I'm Richard Serrett, and tonight, this morning... I'm coming to you live from the home studio in old Thornhill, just north of Toronto. Is it really possible that in just a few short days, Wednesday, in fact, it will be 60 years since the assassination of President Kennedy? 60. That was a little less than two months before I was born. Now, I'm reading an online story from Rachel Tucker. She is the digital content producer for WFLA-TV in Tampa, Florida. And it was on this day, November the 18th, 60 years ago today, that President John F. Kennedy became the first sitting president to visit Tampa. The city has been tied to the 35th president ever since as conspiracy theories circled in the following decade, alleging Tampa's connection to his assassination. Four days before Kennedy was shot while riding in his convertible in Dallas, thousands of Tampa residents lined the streets to watch the presidential motorcade roll through the city and travel down Kennedy Boulevard. An historical marker was erected along the same road at Likes Gaslight Park in 2013, to commemorate the occasion. Kennedy flew in to MacDill Air Force Base, where he was welcomed by Tampa Mayor Nick Nuccio and U.S. Senator George Smathers. He gave speeches at Al Lopez Field and the Fort Homer Hesterly Armory. He spoke before a crowd of 4,500 people at the Florida Chamber of Commerce. If we can work in harmony, he said, if we can understand each other's problems and position, If we can respect each other's roles and responsibilities, then surely the business of mankind will prosper and we will move ahead in a secure world, one where there is opportunity for all. Those were his words in Tampa. The city of Tampa, however, may have a more sinister connection to the Kennedy assassination. In 2017, a newly released FBI file revealed a plant city man, Daniel Alicorn, Alicorn, Uh, who was 16 years old at the time, sent the agency a photo of Kennedy posing with a man resembling his killer, Lee Harvey Oswald. This photo later appeared in an issue of Florida Catholic. When WFLA caught up with him decades later, Alarcon said he didn't remember speaking to the FBI. The Kennedy assassination files also point to Oren Potito, of St. Petersburg, whom the FBI said was well-connected with various right-wing groups. In a 1964 speech documented by the FBI, Potito said that Jack Ruby, who murdered Oswald, had access to the Dallas parade route ahead of time and gave it to him. Potito allegedly, or alleged rather, that Ruby was a communist who infiltrated the Dallas Police Department on the grounds that, according to Potito, Only the police and U.S. Secret Service agents had access to the route. He claimed Ruby obtained the information and arranged for Oswald to take a job at a building along the route in order to carry out the assassination. The man also pushed a conspiracy theory that is still cited today, saying that there was a second shooter who was never apprehended. 
Ultimately, Portito's accusations were never corroborated with other evidence. The Warren Commission determined that Ruby acted alone in killing Oswald and could not connect it to any broader conspiracy surrounding the Kennedy assassination. Tampa has also found itself embroiled in conspiracies surrounding Kennedy's death. For decades, various theories have circulated, implying the local mafia leaders had something to do with it. Santo Traficante Jr. was well a well-known mafia figure from Tampa. A longtime attorney and friend, Frank Regano, claimed that before the mobster's death in 1987, Traficante revealed that he was involved in ordering Kennedy's murder. Regano's son, Chris, told WFLA in 2017 that his father heard the confession from Traficante as they were driving down Bayshore Boulevard just days before his death. He claimed Traficante told his father in Sicilian that they should have killed Robert Kennedy instead. The theory is that the mafia was angry with the Kennedy family because the organization used their influence to have him elected as president. And then after he took office, Robert Kennedy helped prosecute mafia members as U.S. Attorney General. This is, again, from WFLA-TV Tampa and their digital content producer, Rachel Tucker. Sixty years ago today, JFK was in Tampa. I'm sure I'll get into the possible Tampa connection to JFK's assassination at some point during the next four hours because we're going pillar to post on Coast tonight, this morning, commemorating the 60th anniversary of the murder of a president. Coming up in hours one and two, Chuck Ocelli, a.k.a. the blind JFK researcher, will be here, joining us, I believe, from the JFK Lancer Conference, taking place all weekend long in Dallas, Texas. Chuck is a polymath, a podcaster, noted JFK researcher, and the host of The Ocelli Effect. Chuck brings a conspiracy realist's perspective to topics ranging from deep politics to popular culture, from political assassinations to science, fact, and fiction, from the alternative to the mainstream, from the speculative to the historical. In the second half, noted JFK researcher James D. Eugenio returns to Coast to Coast. James has written or co-edited four books on the assassination of the 60s, Destiny Betrayed, The Assassinations, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, and JFK Revisited. The last volume is the companion piece to Oliver Stone's two recent documentaries on the Kennedy assassination, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, and JFK Destiny Betrayed. James wrote the screenplays for both of those films, His latest project is as one of five contributors to a brand new book, The JFK Assassination Chokeholds, that prove there was a conspiracy. From the magic bullet theory to evidence for Oswald impersonators to the overwhelming evidence, shots were fired from the front. Ten evidentiary chokeholds or indisputable arguments that would stand up in a court of law. James will be here in hours three and four. Incidentally, the list of bumper music tonight features hits from 1963. Coming up next, the blind JFK researcher. Welcome to the audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. 
There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. I'm Richard Serrett, and this is Coast to Coast AM. Why don't you stay a while? In the late 1980s, Chuck Ocelli was a high school student and a musician, generally fascinated with American history, particularly educating himself on the circumstances surrounding the assassination of John F. Kennedy. In the 1990s, Chuck progressively engaged in JFK research and investigations revolving around many deep political figures and events. His contributions and participation in support of various authors and producers of media projects as an interviewer, analyst, and research assistant, coupled with having a lifelong appreciation for the medium of talk radio, evolved into active correspondence with various alternative media figures. Fast forward to today, and Chuck has a JFK YouTube channel and a podcast called The Ocelli Effect. Chuck Ocelli, welcome to Coast to Coast AM. How are you? Extremely grateful to be here, not only because I'm on Coast to Coast AM, but because I am on with the host I would choose to be on with. I am a fan of Richard Serrett's. I want to announce that first and foremost before we go any further. And I've been a fan since before you did this show, sir. And I don't know if I told you that the last time we spoke, but I want to tell the world right now. That, That's uh, very you are kind. listening to one of the best there is. As a connoisseur of the medium, I want it said here first. That's very, very kind of you. I'm, uh, I'm humbled and a little embarrassed. <laughs> uh, let's let's talk about the the um, the handle, uh, the blind JFK researcher. Now, you you as you mentioned, we've talked before. I know that you are visually impla- uh, impaired, so uh, I, we get the the blind part, uh, but. The JFK angle for you is interesting and kind of sad because it's, I mean, it's personal for you. Why you, in, in many respects, decided to go down this path and investigate JFK. Can you talk to me a little bit about um, your dad? All right. We'll go straight for one of the most emotional things we could possibly get to. Why does it matter? Well, how about why does it matter to me? Why would I put in my time, my effort? And believe me, you put in time, effort, you put in your treasures on some level. It will cost you money. It will cost you a lot of things to deeply investigate this circumstance, this thing that happened. So let me take you forward in time quickly to just a few months after the public execution of the 35th president of the United States. Let's go forward to August of 1964. Why am I there? Because there was this incident in a place called the Gulf of Tonkin. And what happened as a result of this incident in the Gulf of Tonkin? Well, we had an escalated interaction with something that would later be called the Vietnam War. This thing... Why am I talking about it? Well, first of all, the Gulf of Tonkin incident you will find today is generally understood as, well, some would call it a false flag. Others would call it a falsity of uh, circumstances that is a justification for the escalation of warfare. It literally launches the United States into deep involvement in Vietnam. Now, why does this matter to me personally? My father was a veteran of that war. In 1976, he would take his life after returning home, after being disillusioned, after being traumatized. Why am I talking about the Gulf of Tonkin and my father's suicide? 
simple. Mm. It would not have had to have happened had John F. Kennedy not been killed because he was going to withdraw us from Vietnam before the end of calendar year 1965. How do I know this? Because there was a National Security Action Memorandum. This is the easiest thing to point to, 265 and 26, well, excuse me, 263. And here's the thing. He wanted all U.S. personnel out of there. That would eliminate the need for a decade of warfare, a decade of trauma, a decade in which, yes, indeed, 58,000 men at some people's counts would die from the United States side, but over a million men would be returned to this country, mutilated in one way or another, whether it was physically, spiritually, psychologically, etc., etc. My father was one of those men, Richard. Yeah, it doesn't get any more personal than that. You'd still have well, your dad, perhaps. If if Kennedy had not been uh, murdered, your father might still be with us, conceivably. That's precisely how I feel about it. Now, my father wouldn't be important to a lot of other people, but he was to me. I was a four-year-old. I tell you that there were a lot of other men that would have been, been important and were important to other people. This influenced our society. This changed the trajectory of our country. And this was not the only way that it was altered. Count however many bullets you wish. At the barrel of a gun, one way or another, no matter what you believe, even if you believe the official story, you must know that our history was altered. You must know that this changed things. This changed the behavior of our country. It changed the mentality of our country, even. People talk about that as well. Back to the Gulf of Tonkin, though. I urge you to look at the military's official history. You will find that the Gulf of Tonkin, as it was reported at the time, that incident, not exactly as it was reported, not exactly represented correctly, and yet it was the justification for that decade of warfare. Since then, we've had a war that eclipsed it. Yes, indeed. We've had other instances of things where there are questionable circumstances. But to me, this is where the generation was changed. This is where Generation X, who does not often show up in politics, who does not really assert itself. You know, we were the, it's me, by the way. I was born in 1972. I already gave you the math. 1976, my father killed himself. I was four years old, so there you go. I'm a Generation Xer. We didn't seem to show up very well. You notice there's people older than us and younger than us in the politics, in power, et cetera. Now, that doesn't mean none from my generation show up, but I feel as though we were affected. And I know that I was affected as a parent, as a person in society having relationships with others. I know that our society was affected. And I dare say that without this, we may be in a better position today. We may have a better mentality. We may have some of that country that I thought I grew up in, that I was told I grew up in. We might have some of that. We may not, but we might not have had the scar of the Vietnam War. Yeah. And I think that is a reasonable explanation for why this absolutely matters. Massive generational trauma, when you think about it. Um, Chuck, you're uh, are you in Dallas tonight? Are you uh, you're at the are you at the JFK Lancer uh, conference in Dallas? Absolutely, I am. I'm, I'm yeah. speaking to you from a hotel room. I apologize because I'm not usually on a cell phone when I do things like this. But yes, I'm at the Lorenzo Hotel. 
uh, in Dallas, Texas, and the tickets are sold out, so you can't get into the conference, but you can get on virtually, and it is the 27th annual Lancer Conference here in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I am actually the MC of that event, which is why my voice is hoarse. Excuse me for that, Richard. I mean, no, you I'm sound you sound just fine. Voice. I'm you, on with you a sound great just fine. Voice. I'm I'm embarrassed to be hoarse, but I'm doing my job, Richard. So here we are. <laughs> no, you sound just fine, Chuck, and the the signal sounds great. And this is also being presented by Larry Hancock as well. Another, uh, he's a real documents uh, guy. I've had the pleasure of speaking with Larry. Thanks to you, you introduced us, and we had a great conversation. Uh, he really dives deep into the documents. Um, let me ask you uh, about recent um, new information that came from ex-Secret Service man Paul Landis, now 88 years old, mm. claiming that he um, that he found a bullet, uh, I guess, in the back seat that perhaps had the theory goes maybe struck Kennedy in the back. It was a shallow wound. It fell out. Landis, who was his detail was to protect Jackie that day. Uh, he, he, he grabbed the bullet as Kennedy was being wheeled into Parkland hospital uh, on, on a gurney and not wanting that piece of evidence to, to get separated from the crime scene, so to speak, he placed it on according to his recollection placed it on Kennedy's gurney. In your estimation, how does that either add further clarification to what may have happened to Kennedy on November 22nd, or how does it further muddy the water? Hmm. Well, uh, it, it, it is a thing you got to parse out a bit. Uh, when you take a look at Mr. Landis's statements, and I'm going to try and do this as respectfully as possible because uh, Mr. Landis has lived a full life and was a Secret Service agent, and I try not to disparage gentlemen who do a job like that, uh, you know, protection, things like this. I really do. But uh, according to his previous statements, which he has made in the past, according to many things, um, you can find contradictions. And if you study this case at all, you'll find it all along the way. Um, the statements about this absconding with evidence, really tampering with evidence in reality, it's difficult to say what it really means. To me, it does disturb things, and it certainly helped him sell a book. And I think primarily that was the, well, that was the uh, motivation <laughs> for this statement. I don't think it was to make clarity. I don't think it was to improve anybody's understanding of the very, very confusing evidence that is in the public hands regarding the bullets, the projectiles, the shooting event, uh, you can find a million pathways through it. My opinion, and this is my opinion, which is a little controversial even among my peers, is that uh, Mr. Landis at best is mistaken about what he did. Um, but it would explain a few things, and it confuses a few pieces of hard evidence that people have worked very, very hard to unearth, considering that it took uh, others to try and trace the chain of evidence, the chain of custody, excuse me, regarding what becomes Commission Exhibit 399, the alleged magic bullet. 
Which All right, uh, Chuck, uh, pardon the interruption. i got to uh, yeah. jump in here. We're going to take a quick timeout. We'll come back. We'll discuss CE 399. Uh, there's some suggestion that the the bullet, if in fact Landis did pick it up from the back seat, that's the one that ended up on Governor Connolly's uh, gurney. But we'll uh, we'll get into that shortly. Chuck Ocelli stays with us, the blind JFK researcher. Chuck Ocelli is here, the blind JFK researcher. And uh, the podcast is called The Ocelli Effects. And we've linked up to the website. That's Ocelli.com, O-C-H-E-L-L-I, Ocelli.com. And uh, commemorating the 60th anniversary of the murder of the 35th president of the United States. That's happening in just a few days. And uh, Chuck is coming to us uh, tonight from Dallas, uh, where all weekend long, well, yesterday, today, and uh, tomorrow, the uh, JFK Lancer conference is taking place. And uh, Chuck is emceeing, and it's also presented by JFK researcher Larry Hancock. And um, as you mentioned, Chuck, it's sold out, but people can still um, they can still log in and watch the virtual conference. And I guess the best place would be what JFK Lancer uh, publications dot com for people to yes. do that. Yes, indeed, that would be a great place. And you wouldn't just get the one day; you can get the entire thing, all of what's happened already, and what's about to happen tomorrow. You can visit that virtually at that web address tree. All right. Before the break, we were talking about uh, ex-Secret Service agent Paul Landis, who was assigned that day to protect Jackie. Uh, after the um, uh, the president was struck and was taken to a Parkland Hospital, he claims he found a, a bullet in the back seat. He placed it on Kennedy's gurney, uh, I guess, in the emergency room, hoping that the evidence would stay with the body. Uh, some have speculated that that bullet ended up later on Connolly's Governor Connolly's uh, gurney in almost pristine uh, condition, and that became uh, CE three nine nine, the single bullet theory responsible for all of the the multiple injuries that uh, uh, Kennedy suffered and Connolly suffered, and without that CE three nine nine, without that magic bullet. Um, really the whole lone gunman theory falls apart. So um, you were saying that you believe that, uh, you know, Landis is at the very best. He's mistaken. Um, Is there anything further you wanted to add? Yeah. Yeah, Let me strike a few things, if you don't mind, Richard, because you, you hit a bunch of points there. In that statement you made, some people might think it's very simple. Let's try and quickly do it, and I can speak quickly, and I'm going to do it now. Deal is this. Not only do we have a problem with, yes, you need the magic bullet to make the thing work, but it's really about the trajectory and the fact that we have a lack of bullets to justify a lot of wounds. And we have questions as to whether that thing ended up on Governor Connolly's stretcher or possibly on Kennedy's stretcher, or was it on Ronald Fuller's stretcher? There's a name a lot of people might not know, but there was a severely injured boy in the trauma section of the hospital being treated at the same time. The gurneys... There's a lot of questions regarding uh, exactly which gurney it was on and how odd it would be that a bullet would fall out of Governor Connolly, you know, according to some people, or possibly it was placed there by Paul Landis or whatnot. There are so many different possibilities here. And here's the funny part. I defy anyone to put together a good enough chain of events that they could enter it as evidence into a court of law. I doubt it could be done. 
but go ahead and try if you like. I encourage people to go out there and try to figure out how it works. It would help, just like Larry Hancock showed us today at the conference. If people did a bit of a old literature search, I mean, we got to hear from Larry and people like uh, Gail Nix Jackson today, another issue with her. Uh, you know, a lot of interesting speakers. Maybe we'll get to that later. But here's the thing. Just, just focusing on this one bullet and this problem and Mr. Landis, you'd have to look at his previous statements, the literature. You know what I find curious in this, Richard? Something nobody mentions at all, but, uh, but I, I love the things that other people decide not to mention. Repeatedly in the literature, you'll find even the doctor conducting the autopsy, why did you burn your notes, Dr. Humes? Which, by the way, the original autopsy notes were destroyed. And there's been a controversy about that. I urge you to look into it. I'm not going to break it down for you, but why did you destroy your notes, Dr. Humes? Why is it that Mr. Landis pocketed this bullet? A lot of people were concerned with souvenir hunters, Richard. Apparently, that comes up in the literature a few times. <laughs> I'm not making any of this up. This is not conspiracy theory. I'm talking about in the official record. These were the reasons for some of these actions. And, uh, oh, Mr. Landis is not in, in a book. But he does have statements in the official record, and they don't match his statements in his book at all. Just saying. Uh, so there's a lot of confusion, and rightfully so, because whether it's the official record, the work of citizen researchers, uh, others that just, you know, glom onto the case because it's popular at the moment, <laughs> which there are people who do that. People that fabricate ideas and insert themselves into the history, which happens a lot uh, in many events. But in this particular case, there's <laughs> a few doozies out there. We'll leave that alone too, Richard, because I want to keep answering your questions. At the end of the day, though, the whole situation with former Agent Landis, he's speaking from a position of uh, trauma. He's speaking from a position of being older. And by the way, elements of his story have been told by others at certain points in time, but they do not match his previous statements. I urge people to search the literature, search the testimony, search what it is you can find that others have recorded. And, uh, you know, there, there is a very interesting guy named Vince Palmera who did a whole lot of research on the Secret Service. Matter of fact, I would say he's a Secret Service expert when it comes to the Kennedy assassination, certainly, and possibly beyond it. And I would look at his work. And by the way, nobody pays me. <laughs> I'm referring you to people that have written things that you can access easily and follow up on, but also the official record. So, Richard, hopefully I've answered a whole bunch of things that you mentioned yeah, I... in that little statement about just that bullet, CE-399, better known as the magic bullet. The um, the formation of the magic uh, bullet theory, um, my understanding was uh, that that was created by um, the, the senator from Pennsylvania, who's now his name escapes yeah. me. Um, the, he was Arlen a junior Spector. senator from Pennsylvania. Arlen Specter, thank you. Thank who you. Who was supposed to be a junior counsel and a team of two for the Warren Commission, and he was supposed to investigate a particular area. You know, his senior counselor showed up for a little while and then never came back. Anyway, Arlen Specter, who later does become not only a Democrat, but then a Republican, then a Democrat, then a Republican. I'm not sure if I have that in the right order, but you get the picture. Uh, switching parties throughout his career. Yes, indeed, his career was certainly springboarded by his work 
regarding the Horn Commission and his work as a lawyer uh, in that case. Uh, true. Very, very true. Interesting, interesting situation there. And he is often credited as the guy who came up with it. And uh, yeah, fair enough. But he he has no background in forensics or ballistics, does he? I mean, how 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 is it that a one guy comes up with this theory to, you know, to explain all of these multiple injuries from one single bullet Again, without which, you know, you you, ha- you have a conspiracy because you then therefore have to have more than one gunman. How is he able to concoct this theory and not have it, you know, uh, sort of ripped apart by forensic or ballistic experts? Oh, well, here's the thing. I, I won't give you my ugly lawyer jokes here, but what is the job of a lawyer, Richard? A, a lawyer is to tell a story to back up a claim. They are the biggest theorists ever. They're supposed to write stories. As a matter of fact, that's what you do when you're writing motions. You're writing out ideas. You're creating scenarios to sell to a jury and a judge, and this is what you do for a living. So by his nature, that's the kind of thing he would do. What do you do? Why is he not being challenged? Well, he was being challenged. Uh, but he also found others in those fields to back his claims, as many other people have done with a whole bunch of junk science over the years in order to back their claims, which, by the way, the conspiracy advocate community, which I am part of, is not entirely innocent in that (laughs) case either. But let's stick to your question. What happened? Uh, No, to my knowledge, our inspector never had I don't know, degrees in physics, degrees in ballistics, never was trained in it, uh, never quite understood. I don't know what any other thing would be here. There's a whole lot of science involved. And to my knowledge, he was a lawyer and uh, that was his education. So, yeah, good question. He found other experts to allegedly bolster it. And because it was, uh, you know, released under the auspices of this presidential commission, uh, these uh, seven men who were, you know, of, of great reputation, although I'm not quite sure how Gerald Ford got on there, but still uh, had a great reputation. They should have been men of uh, esteem so as to, oh, I'm trying to tell you the story from 1963, the idea that was sold to the public. I'm sorry, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, the magic bullet and how it was sold, they needed a solution because they lacked evidence even then, immediately, even though the public was not privy to all of it, what they had become privy to, they had a third wounded man named James Tay. Okay, so you have President Kennedy, Governor Connolly, and James Tay all wounded. James Tay only got a little scratch on his face from something hitting a curbstone, which caused it to, not sure if it was pieces of curbstone or pieces of a bullet that cut him, but James Tay was wounded just very slightly. Governor Connolly was severely wounded, had seven wounds, if you count them correctly. And John F. Kennedy, minimally, was hit in the body and the head. Now, <laughs> you need a few bullets. They only had allegedly three collected spent cartridges, and of course, that's questionable as well. In the chosen place, the sniper's nest, so-called, in the book depository building, you've only got three possible shots. You've got to make this work. You need a magic bullet, in fact. Richard, don't you? Absolutely. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart. What is the lawyer to do? He must create a scenario by which he makes the evidence fit the theory. And if you take a look at the way the, the Warren Commission was formulated in the first place, 
you'll find that that was the idea. They created panels, groups. Three of them had the name Oswald in them regarding the investigation, alleged investigation. Let me be proper. Uh, you know, regarding this, so seems to me as though they already had a guilty party chosen because they only had one suspect who died in police custody, by the way, you know, two days later. But we'll get to that later, maybe. Yeah. Uh, still, you, you need to take the little bit of evidence that's allegedly been, you know, handed you, and you must create a scenario that works. Otherwise, how could you possibly prosecute someone in the public's mind? Oswald. Oswald never uh, had to stay in court. Go ahead. Lee Harvey Oswald, um, based on your years of research and <clears throat> experts and res other researchers you've talked to, is there any question in your mind that Oswald cannot be placed on the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository building at the time of the assassination? Based on the, uh, the, the only witness that absolutely sticks to the idea that he was seen in that window with a weapon, uh, a gentleman who was on the ground named uh, uh, Howard Brennan, you know, uh, who, who wasn't wearing his glasses and, by the way, could identify somebody six floors up through a dirty window uh, looking up at them and could tell you exactly how tall they were and what the color of their hair was. Uh, that gentleman who was looking at him from across the street, I don't know, maybe you should try that at home. Look up six floors through a dirty window. See if you can identify the height, weight, and, uh, you know, tone of someone's hair from that distance, especially if you're not wearing your prescription glasses. Give it a shot. Uh, I would be impressed if you can pull that off. But anyway, the, the Warren Commission star witness, uh, this, this is what you have. So you have a hard time placing Lee Harvey Oswald in the sixth floor window at that moment for various reasons. They're, they're, it's endless. We could spend the next four hours just talking about that, if you like. Um, well, we can talk a little bit about it, but I do want to I want to talk about maybe some evidence that suggests that Oswald was uh, in the doorway at the time of the shooting. Uh, there's that AP uh, photo. I believe there's also some some newsreel footage of uh, some call him the prayer man, someone. Uh, who I guess if you look at his build, his hairline and so forth, it's it could be Oswald. He's He's got, I believe, his right arm sort of raised above his chest. He's not praying, but he's been given the name the prayer man. Some have claimed that's um, Billy Lovelady. Some others have claimed, no, that's that could be Oswald. What are your thoughts on that AP photo, the newsreel footage, Oswald in the entrance of the book depository building as – Kennedy is seen in the foreground clutching his throat. Well, I will say that given the timing of that shot, it is interesting. Uh, if all you have is that uh, that, that photograph, though, it, it, uh, allegedly there is a great deal more evidence. And quite frankly, I'm currently going over some evidence on that exact issue and reexamining things. Uh, there were certainly – Billy Lovelady is somewhere in that photograph, I'm certain – uh, I am also certain there are other individuals we can identify with great, great accuracy in that photograph. But uh, I'm, I'm still unconvinced at this moment about the prayer man scenario. I'm working on it. I'm looking at it again because, honestly, you must reexamine based on new information. And there is other information besides the photograph to look at. The statements of people, the statements, uh, other photographs you could – 
look at other evidence where there is documentation of people not being there because they could not possibly be there if they're somewhere else at that exact moment. There's a lot of things that go on and a lot of things to be examined there. I would rather not marry myself to a conclusion on prayer man at the moment. If you had asked me this six months ago, though, I'll be honest with you and I'll tell you that it's just a blurry photo and that's that. But as per usual, there is always people working on these things diligently and going through and discovering new things because the 5 million plus pages that the JFK Records Collection Act pulled together and the, uh, I don't know how many photographs, but the over 1,000 books that have been written on the case, the uh, hundreds and hundreds of photographs taken in just a moment or two's time, pretty much, in Dealey Plaza, the 25-plus films, motion picture pieces, uh, the false leads, the craziness, all that stuff that has been filed into everything from the Dallas police to the FBI, although we have no idea what the DIA had because they actually destroyed all of their evidence the Defense Intelligence Agency. Chuck, i got to jump in again. I I apologize for the interruption. We'll pick up on this on the other side. Uh, Chuck Ocelli stays with us.